Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Democratic state lawmakers in Massachusetts recently introduced a bill to incentivize prisoners to donate organs and bone marrow in return for minor sentence reductions. The language of the bill says that the, quote, program shall allow eligible incarcerated individuals to gain not less than 60 and not more than a 365-day reduction in the length of their committed sentence, unquote. The proposal has sparked criticism from those concerned about the likelihood of exploitation, perverse incentives to increase sentencing for prisoners, and the disturbing implications given racial inequities in incarceration and sentence length. Today's episode highlights the campaign to close Rikers Jail in New York and continues our conversation with Anne Gray Fisher about the intertwined stories of policing, the surveillance of women's bodies, and the creation of the racialized American ghetto. Both Psy, an organizer against Rikers, and Gray Fisher extend the histories of control and racial domination back to the middle of the 20th century. Psy connects his work in solidarity with Rikers prisoners to a family history surviving the Holocaust and resisting the Nazis. And Anne charts how police in the 1940s systematically punished women for transgressing the color line in their sexual relationships. First, here's Psy. I'm Psy. I'm a New Yorker and a Jewish anti-fascist who organizes with other people like me at Outlive Them NYC, um, among other places. And I also go to Rikers to directly build community with other incarcerated Jews. So this past week, leading up to Friday, which was International Holocaust Remembrance Day, we um, put together a website um, called rikersisadeath.camp. Uh, which kind of shows you our position, um, where uh, we did a bunch of different actions every day. I think Monday was like a kind of media, social media day of action um, to raise awareness about um, the conditions at Rikers and the deaths at Rikers. Um, and, um, you know, specifically that 2022 was the deadliest year on Rikers with 19 people dying. and. Um, people have already died at Rikers in 2023 as well. Um, and Tuesday was a like phone zap, email zap day um, to uh, the office of Molina because who's the commissioner under uh, Eric Adams because uh, the new thing um, under him is a like physical letter ban. Um, you know, ostensibly, you know, they claim because uh, people are sending letters with fentanyl in them, um, which is like obviously absurd because we know that guards are smuggling fentanyl in. Um, and so instead of addressing the obvious, they're making it so that um, people on the inside can't receive physical mail, which is like a really important kind of way to like stay connected and um you know like i um 
write a lot of people inside and like it means so much to me to like have their like physical writing and um something that they touched you know and like it's, it's a way to like connect like almost through touch in a way and so it's extremely cruel that like the only way that we would be able to stay in touch is like through scan letters instead um and uh so we did a day of action around that i mean also like throughout the whole week there's been you know we also were mourning tortuguita and um tyree nichols and like it all just really felt um like tied together uh so there was a lot going on oh yeah we kind of had like a flyering day um because we had a lot of good like imagery and and flyering on thursday it was the uh fund the inside day just trying to get money redistributed um and we have a really good like list of organizations that everyone can still always um put money in and also like I often I've been raising commissary for my my friend Rona who is um a trans woman who's currently who I met on Rikers but is currently incarcerated in a men's prison upstate and then Friday was the day of rage and remembrance uh which is um on Holocaust Remembrance Day and uh it was really important to for us to like connect um the remembrance of the Holocaust, which like as um as Jews, like it's something that you really like for me at least, also just from personal experience, um, you know, it was something that we really grew up discussing. Um so I my great grandparents were lost in many of them were lost in the Holocaust. Um uh, my grandfather was in the Dutch resistance. Um, you know, we kind of grew up with this like never again mentality but you know the place that we fled to as refugees like now you know we're in this position of living in a city that has a death camp in it and um yeah for me it's not acceptable to ignore that and you know we let everyone know um to show up and uh they shut down grand central um i had never seen anything like it before um but I guess, you know, yeah, the police shut down Grand Central, but we still ended up, um, you know, getting together and marching through the streets and also like joining um, protests when the uh, Tyree Nichols video came out. So that it that did feel very like powerful to like be together. And I think that um, just confront a lot of people with our message um, and also have, like a moment that was really powerful to me was um, at the end of our action, we read out the names, uh, like people's mic style of everyone who had died at Rikers um, in 2022 and just had a moment together to mourn. So yeah, as I said, <laughs> a lot happened. Yeah, absolutely. It was um it was a really full week and I think it did show a lot of connections in the carceral system and historically generational trauma. Um what can mm-hmm. you tell me a bit more about Outlive Them and your involvement um in the prisons or in contact with uh incarcerated folks? 
Yeah. So um, I think this was even before I really got connected with Outlive Them, but I ended up learning that it's possible to go celebrate Jewish holidays with incarcerated Jews at Rikers. And I started doing that. The first time I did it, it was Pesach. Um, and it was a really, really powerful experience because, um, you know, I had never been inside Rikers before, firstly. So that was really eye-opening. Um, just like, um, you know, in the, in the visitor center, there's a gift shop for the Corrections Officers Benevolent Association, <laughs> aka the CO Union. Um, and, you know, everything is dirty and in disrepair, um, but it also, like, creepily, um, looks like a high school in a lot of ways, which, um, I saw that someone else, like, noted that in the, there's a book that came out recently that's an oral history of Rikers, and I think I remember reading someone saying something really similar to that. Um, it looks like a New York City school, which I totally agree having having been in them um but on the other hand it's you know full of just like misery and tension and that you know it, it was really powerful to be there on Pesach because the people you know the um incarcerated you know fellow congregants made the connection between you know um you know were vocal in their connection between like the slavery between slavery and incarceration and how that connects to the Passover story um and I think that every Jewish holiday kind of has the possibility of being of making some sort of liberatory uh connection so that has been a really good like really pretense upon which to like come in and spend time with people and have these discussions, but it also feels very like powerful and spiritual. And like so many people, you know, um, spirituality is like a really big part of their survival there. Um, and so after the first time I did that, I was like, I need to get like other people who are like really like-minded to me to do this with me. So I, um, you know, made those connections with um, OLT and we started going in like more together and like working on um, you know, like liberation theology style um, things to bring in um, and also just going to like make connections, um, see who needs court support, who needs commissary, who wants different materials. Um, so it's felt, it's felt really, to me, that's like the most important like part of my um, like anti-fascist work in the past year or so um, because I really believe in like direct direct connections, um, direct direct redistribution, um, <laughs> because uh yeah, I just I, I I'm kind of like just literal minded, but also it's just like feels like very like powerful, like vital work. Yeah. Well it's, it seems especially because you come from a lineage of resistance in times of war. Um yeah. and and I think that there is something about Rikers or the jail system that is almost sort of like systematic and mundane and it takes out mm. a certain kind of urgency or perspective around um, what's going on in a conflictual way 
um, but it sounds like you try to just kind of stay connected to like the literal kind of alliances and support um, against, uh, you know, systematic infrastructure that, that keeps people apart from each other. Um, and I feel beautiful. I didn't, yeah. um, I had never thought about um, there being an opportunity to, you know, celebrate Passover or, or have a Seder or something like this. Um, I, I wasn't aware that that was happening. Um, Really yeah, exactly. I think also, like, you know, incarceration is meant to keep us separated. Um, and just being able to circumvent that and actually be together and connect feels really, really powerful. Um, and it feels like it's building towards or like it's building away from that disconnection and towards like a lot, just like bigger, um, bigger webs of connection. It felt really powerful to see people talking about it. Um, you know, at my shul, we had conversations about it, and um, it definitely seems like since 2020, like a lot of people have been like less mobilized or less like focused on um, issues of mass incarceration, and like it felt really special to see like other Jewish organizations like posting these graphics and just like having more of these conversations. Um, and then, you know, on Friday, just like being together felt really, really powerful. I think, um, you know, obviously that's something that COVID has made really difficult. It really felt like there was renewed energy. Yeah, that, felt, that feels really hopeful because, um, it can be so draining. Um, it can feel so like huge and insurmountable. And as you said, there's also like a generational trauma aspect to it. So it can just like be very, very heavy. Um, but, you know, like many hands make light work. So that just, it felt like a bit of a, a swelling in support, which felt really powerful, yeah. We definitely intend to never stop until there's no more Rikers and there's no new jails. Something that I really realized over this week, like having different conversations and kind of like seeing the conversations, I think that building awareness about the plan for new jails is really important because I think that that's something that people aren't as aware of that like they're very focused on closing Rikers, which is extremely important, but, you know, the kind of city plan for closing Rikers is actually to build new jails to replace Rikers, which is unacceptable because we know that the exact same things will happen there. And we are trying to completely end incarceration, not like, you know, just kind of tinker, <laughs> um, tinker with reforms because we know that that doesn't work and that that's exactly what led to last year being the deadliest year on Rikers. So um, I think that there's been a lot of conversations about like making, making our opposition to that clear and raising awareness about that. Um, and the work of um, staying connected to people on the inside, providing support, you know, staying connected as a Jewish community is like ongoing and also, um, Something that I'm really focused on is that um, a really important person to me that I met 
um, at Rikers, Rona Love, um, is a trans woman who uh, has been moved to a men's prison. And uh, if that situation doesn't resolve very quickly, I definitely want to like escalate to more of a public campaign to like raise awareness and uh, get people really pissed off about that. Also, you know, another thing that happened this week was that this paper called The City came out with an article about how dire the conditions in Rikers are for trans women. Um, so I think like looking forward, I definitely see um, a lot more action around that being needed. Um, so yeah. If you want to get connected with us, um, you can follow us at Outlive Them NYC um, on Instagram and on Twitter too, I think. And um, yeah, just see what we're up to and uh, come to a public event to uh, get connected. And also uh, check out the Rikers is a death.camp website. It still has a lot of good information. So thank you. Up next, we continue our conversation between Nicole Siegel and Anne Gray Fisher. So take us a little bit forward into the period of World War II. What was sexual policing like during World War II? And would you call this the end of the old regime or the beginning of the new? And what did that mean? And how did police discretion preserve both racism and sexism? That is, how did it preserve both the color line and gender inequality? So I would say that World War II becomes, um, it's both the fullest expression of the old regime. So that means that white women are hyper, hyper policed on city streets. Um, the arrest numbers skyrocket, particularly for white women. Very unusual, the numbers, the rates of arrests for black women actually slow in this period um, and even maybe decline. So it's it's the fullest expression of the old period in terms of its preoccupation with white women's purity. Um, we also have top level army um, officials saying that they don't even want to go into black neighborhoods to engage in sexual policing because they don't wanna interrupt white men's sexual access to black women, right? So in that way, in terms of the sort of both active hyper-policing and violent neglect of black neighborhoods and black women, this is the fullest expression of the old regime. But it's the new regime in the ways that um, at the federal level, the federal, in the ways that the federal level imposes a lot of uh, sticks and carrots to both incentivize local police departments to engage in sexual policing as a way to demonstrate their patriotism, right, by um, getting the presumed carriers of venereal disease away from soldiers. Um, so the federal uh, authorities really push local police to ramp up their sexual policing as a, sort of a patriotic war effort. And they are either lavished with military contracts or authority and policy making at the federal level, or sometimes in the most extreme cases punished by the federal government, making the cities out of bounds for soldiers, which would be economically devastating for the cities that are hoping to profit off of soldiers um, on leaving the cities and engaging in different kinds of recreational activities. 
So, but the punishments were not often, um, they were, they were only um, imposed twice, but there was a lot of work and a lot of incentives put in place to make local police engage in sexual policing. They not only did this, but they played it up in news reports and in their own publicity materials to showcase how they were um, not the brutal lawless police that people had thought they were just a few years ago, but were instead, you know, sort of the guardians of normative moral order. Um, and not only that, but doing the, the work, doing domestic enforcing to keep cities safe on the home front. And it really worked. Um, police came out of World War II with sparkling reputations, which is shocking given that just even 10 years ago throughout the Depression, they were seen as almost uh, unreformably bad. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit more here about discretion, which is an incredibly important aspect of police practice and one which you identify as really the core of the harm that policing can do. Can you talk a little bit about how police discretion preserved both the color line and gender inequality? Well, in, in this period in particular, during World War II, police discretion preserved gender inequality by continuing to turn away from or actively permit white men to engage in commercial sex. And while I'm reluctant to make the argument that, you know, both parties need to be arrested, that proves equality. So that's not what I'm saying. What I argue instead in the book is that by withholding arrest, police are affirming the sexual prerogative of white men, especially. Uh, it's true if they're officers, definitely true if they were officers during the war, but also true if they were just soldiers or sailors. You know, in World War II, you can see in all of the, the many, many, many conferences around sexual policing during World War II that the most important thing was to preserve white men's sexual license and sexual freedom. And I think that right there showcases a really crucial um, form of gender inequality that white men's sexual access to women is tantamount. Um, we also see in the ways that women are blamed for the spread of different sexually transmitted infections, right? Women become the source of sexually transmitted infections, um, that women are the ones who are dirty. Um, and that really uh, is really important to, through, by who the police choose through their discretion to arrest or not arrest, they are showcasing right, whose sexual life is considered more valuable um, and whose body is considered a problem. So that's the, the gender inequality piece. And then the racial inequality piece, again, comes through in the ways that police are still actively enforcing the color line and arrest by identifying and usually arresting any woman seen with a partner of a different color, right? So it's white women seen with men of color, hotly policed, black women seen with, and, and I have some other stories, even though this is mostly a black and white story, which I talk about why that's the case in the intro, but there are, you know, white women seen with men of Asian descent. That was also a real problem for a lot of these, uh, a lot of cops nationwide. 
for black women seen with white men, this really calls that brings to the fore the question of how to balance white men's sexual prerogative and the sort of police uh, desire to enforce order. So you see a lot of cases where, you know, police approach a couple with a black woman and a white man and either the white men are told to leave, right, or they're just warned. Or usually after a few times if black women are seen with white men, then they are arrested. And this is just one of the clearest examples in this time where police are actively enforcing the color line because any interracial couple becomes cause for action. Mm -hmm. And it's the women, in most cases, it's the women who become the, the target of police interrogation. And the problem of an interracial couple becomes solved when the woman is dealt with by police, right? The men are never really, um, you know, shockingly, particularly for white women with men of color, shockingly, I saw a lot of examples of still the white women being the ones targeted, which I know doesn't really track. We can't imagine that during a period when the brutality of lynch law is still in play, um, even by the 40s, right, with um, men of color being targeted for their presumed, the, the lie that's of the, the black male rapist, right, being yeah. is still in play. And yet it's primarily in the North, we're actually seeing the problem of an interracial couple being solved, being resolved through the punishment of the woman. I, I thought of another term that might be good to explicate to listeners. And it's simply the term woman, um, because you're very careful about um, the place of trans women, particularly their vulnerability to sexual policing in the present and in recent years. And when you say woman, when you write woman in the book, you mean uh, everybody who identifies as a woman. That, that I found that very useful. Yes, and it's really, um, you know, even though I do, you know, I know this conversation might sound a little abstract, but I really try to tell stories about actual people. And so when I'm talking about women, it's this ideological construction of, you know, what of this bundle of ideas about what makes womanhood. And black and white womanhood, like so many other specific, iterations of gender, right? Black and white womanhood are defined um, against each other and with each other, right? Or in contrast to each other. So white womanhood is historically domestic, right? And pure. And um, there's this whole set, it's freighted with these ideas about sexual normativity, heteronormativity, moral purity, right? That's this like white womanhood um, concept and black womanhood is always defined in contrast to it, right? So black womanhood by the white authorities that I'm talking about, the by white authorities, black womanhood is degraded, is criminal, is deviant. So humans on the street, right, become filtered through this police ideological lens, right? And, and, and usually it's, it's humans on specific city streets, right? So a white woman in a black neighborhood is an immediate cause for alarm. A black woman in a white neighborhood, right? It becomes an immediate cause for alarm. Someone flagged as, you know, um, gender non-normative or, right, uh, or perhaps, you know, 
black and queer or white and queer in specific urban spaces becomes an immediate cause for police action. And it's through the, the process, right, where a police officer sees a human on city streets and approaches them, you know, and arrests them on some sort of presumed violation of, of sexual or moral normativity, right, then they're defining once again, they're, they're actively re-engaging in the process of defining what makes legal womanhood, what makes criminal womanhood. Yeah. This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who helped with this episode. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every week for more stories, news, and insights on the prison system. Thank you for listening.